Amen. Great. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Melissa Sam, a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And um, so last time when we um, were working together, when I was speaking, we were uh, in the chapter of the family afterwards, and we had just gotten to um, the bottom of page 124. And it says, it is possible to dig up past misdeeds so that they become a blight, a veritable plague. A few of us have had these growing pains and they hurt a great deal. And we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. So we were right before that, we were talking about how the things of the past can actually be discussed so that they can um, be helpful for other people, right? But here it's saying that, um, sorry, I just got that. Here it's saying that sometimes it's best not to. And I think that in the, um, they're all, they're all like yelling and <laughs> there's a lot of action in this house. It's a perfect chapter for the family afterward. Um, so, the, um, the, you know, when we bring up other people's um, misdeeds, that's the problem, right? If I'm going to bring up my own to help other people, that's one thing. But if I'm going to bring up what other people did as a testament to talk about how far we've come, that could be mean and hurtful. It's not really my business to bring up what other people have done, nor if I'm gonna speak about things that I've done in the past that might embarrass or bring shame to family members, we ought to think about that as well, right? Like, especially, you know, I'm thinking some of the things that I did in my youth, if my mom were around, right? It wouldn't really, if my mother were here, it wouldn't be useful to bring up those things because they would hurt her. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't need to know now certain things. So we have to be careful what things we share and in what forum we're sharing them. Page 125, it says, a man may criticize or laugh at himself and it will affect others favorably. You know, and I think what's, it's really incredible how we can laugh at ourselves and it's helpful to others when we don't take ourselves quite so seriously. Like, you know, and I think it's really useful when we're working with new sponsees and those that are starting their inventory work with us. You know, if we can air, you know, if we can share our own messes in a light and humorous way, if we can laugh at ourselves a little bit, then we can help these fellows feel safe with us. And, and I do have, you know, lots of ways of telling my story that some of it's pretty funny, you know? And if I, um, you know, and especially when the, the, the kind of the, the kind of the making fun that I'm doing is at me and not other people. If I'm laughing at some of the things I've said and some of the ways that I've behaved, um, you know, it makes, it can make people, it can make people laugh. Like, you know, I could share with somebody how, um, you know, I used to get upset if I asked someone to do something in the house 
and they did it, but they pouted while they did it. Right. And they would like, Oh, you know, like, Oh, I got to do this. And, and then I was telling a sponsee about it and we were laughing saying that, you know, because I want them to do it like they're Cinderella with the birds chirping around their heads and, and the mice, you know, digging in and helping. And we laughed about it and it brought some humor, right? It brought like a little light into the occasion. And now funny enough, like when her and I have these shared experiences where she asks someone in her family to do something and they pout, she, you know, she'll text me and say, you know, I was hoping that they were going to be more like Cinderella. And it, it makes, you know, it kind of lessens the sting of some of those resentments. Um, and so we're, we're encouraged to do that, you know, because um, it says criticism or ridicule coming from another often produces the contrary effect. Members of a family should watch such matters carefully for one careless, inconsiderate remark has been known to raise the very devil. We alcoholics are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. And so we're told here, a serious handicap is extreme sensitivity. And actually, if you look at extreme sensitivity, it's really self-centeredness, isn't it? Like when we experience everything as though it's personal to us, that's self-centered. And that's what we're supposed to be looking to let go of, that self-centered thing. If you get offended easily, if you take things personally, we're kind of told also this won't disappear. This isn't gonna be a... Um, to Stonewall Jackson Highway. This is not um, some, oh, there we go. That this is um, something that might take a while, you know, to be, to be removed. Um, and we should remember, you know, that our families have learned how to respond to inconsiderate remarks from watching the way that we respond to inconsiderate remarks. So what should we do? Cut them some slack and be careful with our criticism. Be careful when we criticize people. Um, and you know, boy, I can probably write a book on this subject, on my criticism. You know, um, it's also for me, it comes wearing the mask of advice. I'm just giving you a little advice. And I have now heard over and over and over again something, um, that unsolicited advice is criticism. If you give somebody advice and they didn't ask for it, what you're actually doing is you're criticizing them. So um, be careful with that. And by the way, nobody appreciates being criticized. Nobody, nobody likes it. Nobody likes being given advice that they never asked for. Many alcoholics are enthusiasts. They run to extremes. At the beginning of recovery, a man will take, as a rule, one of two directions. He may either plunge into a frantic attempt to get on his feet in business, or he may be so enthralled by his new life that he talks or thinks of little else. In either case, certain family problems will arise. 
with these, we have had experiences galore. And I love that they say that, that they have had experiences galore. So I have seen and experienced myself either being obsessed by my job, right? And especially like, you know, you get, and you get recovered and you start like, you want to function at a much higher level in your workplace. And I would get like a hit there. And then another area that I would get obsessed is by healthy eating, right? I'm going to be now I'm on this like health kick and I'm suddenly pointing out to everybody around me, you know, in, in giving advice on what's healthy and unhealthy. And um, nobody asked me, right? Nobody asked me. Um, or else being totally body, body focused. People can get really body focused or else on fire and entirely focused on the 12 steps, on meetings, on service, which are all important, but it can leave the family wondering where they fit in. They might wonder, what about me? You're neglecting me, right? In page 127, it says, the family must realize that dad, though marvelously improved, is still convalescing. So we're still just, we're getting well. They should be thankful he's sober and able mm -hmm. to be of this world once more. Let them praise his progress. Let them remember that his drinking brought all kinds of damage that they may take, that may take long to repair. If they sense these things, they will not take so seriously his periods of crankiness, depression, or apathy, which will disappear when there is love, tolerance, and spiritual understanding. So they're kind of advising the family to give us the little slack. And since we learn in this program that we must take the lead, I'm gonna say that I have to give others some slack when they get enthusiastic about things, when they get on fire about their interests and their things. And I have to remember, since I'm convalescing, I'm going to be cranky at times. And so will my family members, right? People get cranky. Um, and I love how it uses the word cranky because it sort of reminds me, we were talking the last time about this kind of immaturity that we have, that we're, you know, king baby, right? And even that word crankiness sounds like very immature. And aren't we, when we're being cranky, we're, we're sort of demonstrating true immaturity in us. Um, and so, you know, more and more what I find in, the, in this chapter is that we can't take things so seriously. And to me, the chapter just keeps illuminating that need for getting a little thicker skinned. And that sensitivity is self-centeredness. So I need thicker skin as I become more other-centered. You know, now it says, since the home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. So let's talk about this word for a moment, exert. 
What does it mean to exert? Because it says here, we're gonna have to exert ourselves, right, into our families. Well, if you exert, you put forth or put into use power. You exercise as ability or influence, put into vigorous action to exert every effort. Put oneself into strenuous, vigorous action and effort. So that's work, isn't it? That's work. And it's no surprise that many newly recovered fellows find that they much prefer to spend time talking to fellows, doing service, because it's a little easier at times. We all kind of share the language. We're all sort of have our eyes fixed on this same goal, same purpose, same mission. And yet here we're told, you're gonna have to exert effort to your family. You're gonna have to, you know, and so what does that look like? Um, show up, show up, do, you know, for me, do the laundry, right? Do the laundry, fold the clothes. Don't wait while other people, you know, one of the most spiritual actions I take is, when I come downstairs in the morning and the sink is overflowing with dishes, to not throw the temper tantrum, to thank God that I've got running water in my house, thank you God, that I've got plenty of like liquid soap and new sponges and that there's nothing wrong with my arms, that I can put my hands in and wash the dishes, which also means that I have the benefit of having people who love me, who live with me, right? I have the benefit of having plenty of food, right? Because otherwise there wouldn't be any dishes there. Um, and so that I'm fortunate. And, um, and so those are some of the ways for me, that's where I exert the greatest effort in doing the housework, right? And saying, instead of saying, this isn't fair, I do it all the time. You know, if I'm exerting effort, so what? So what? I won't, you know, I don't have to worry so much about being taken for granted, I'll trust God with that in the end. God will make sure, right? If it doesn't seem fair, I'll, I'll let God be in charge of doling out fair and unfair. And by the way, when I'm concerned with what's fair and unfair, what I'm really concerned with is when it looks unfair to me, right? Because when I'm on the winning end, I never worry about what's fair, never, right? So my own spiritual growth occurs when I exert effort in the home. Unselfish, right? Not interested in my own means, not interested in my own way. When I'm unselfish, I'm generous. I'm altruistic. If I'm unselfish with my husband, it means I do my best to put his needs ahead of my needs. If I'm generous with my time and with not having my way, now, some of you might say, my God, this sounds so anti-feminist. Well, you know what? I'm not gonna worry about that either because um, I believe, you know, I have plenty of beliefs about equality and justice, but in this program, like I said before, I'll worry, I'll leave that up to God. In my home, my job is to be unselfish, is to just be unselfish. 
Um, you know, and the other thing is there, if I have a choice between two things, one choice benefits my spouse more than me, and the other choice benefits me, I'm, I'm directed to demonstrate unselfishness. And I also believe that in step three, where I really turned my will and my life over to the care of God, then if I live in agreement with God's will for me, meaning I believe God's will for me is to love and give to my family. I do believe that. I believe if God gave you fortunate enough to give you a family, he wants you to love on that family, to be patient with that family. I think God gave me my family to love. Then I don't have to worry about such trivial concerns as being taken advantage of or being too giving and loving. God will give me boundaries and guidelines and he'll give me what I need. And it's so funny because right now, I don't know if you hear that ding in the background, there's nothing I can do about it. I This is like my husband's territory. There's a, an old smoke alarm in the house that he was going to work on taking the battery out. And I, you know, I'm going to have to demonstrate if I'm like, it's like, really, how much are you going to, are you going to practice what you preach? Or are you going to like text him a mean, you know, text while you're trying to speak and tell him to shut the thing off. But, you know, I'm going to have to trust that that's, that is exactly what it is. You know, um, to me, this chapter says, you know, um, Oh, it says here, we know there are difficult wives and families, but the man who is getting over alcoholism, getting over compulsive overeating, must remember that he did much to make them so. So if you're not happy with the way that people are behaving in your family, specifically, I would say like your kids, your husband, your siblings, remember you did much to make this so. You are a contributor to the things that you might not be liking very much. And, you know, this chapter to me just keeps on saying, oh, you don't like the way your kids are behaving? You don't like the way your husband is? Hmm, how did you contribute to this? What did you do to get the ball rolling? Remember our amends. There is a long period of reconstruction ahead. And our 10th step reminds us that we must take the lead. We must take the lead here. You know, the place for me where I always behaved the worst was in the privacy of my own home. I was kind to strangers. I put on my smile, right? I put on my lipstick. I baked the cupcakes for the PTA, for the class functions. I was a Girl Scout troop leader mom. I gave plenty of my time to everyone else's kids poured out a lot of time and attention to neighbors' kids who were in the troop. While I was that leader, I put on great elaborate parties, like huge shows. That's what they were. They were shows. They were events. And I gave my family the worst of me. While I put on those elaborate shows, while I was busy planning these fabulous Girl Scouting events, in the privacy of my own home, I would throw a temper tantrum, right? I would curse and yell and scream. And, and I would let some of the unglamorous 
household chores pile up because nobody was watching me dust, right? Nobody was saying, oh my gosh, you're the best laundress ever. But if you put on an exciting event for the Girl Scout troop, all the Girl Scout leader moms and all the, you get a lot of praise and accolades. And so that must be addressed in the family afterward. We must be the kinds of mothers, wives, daughters, et cetera, that God intended us to be behind closed doors. What are you like when the doors are closed? You know, it's not so spiritual of me to ignore my family, to put on elaborate shows for other people, right? Page 127, it says, family talks will be constructive if they can be carried on without heated argument, self-pity, self-justification, or resentful criticism. So when we have to discuss things with our families, we have to be looking to build them up, not tear down. We have to be gentle in our demeanor and in our words. So if I'm not able, if I'm real upset over something and I'm not able to talk about it without arguing and harboring resentments, then I wait until my emotional sobriety is back in check. I pause. I don't have to address it right now. And sometimes, you know, my daughter would say to me, aren't you going to say something? Aren't you going to answer me? Aren't you going to do something? But I have to be especially mindful to not turn the talks into opportunities for me to use my verbal skills and manipulate because that's what I've done in the past. I'm, I'm quick generally on my feet with my words. And I've used that as a weapon in the past with my siblings, with my spouse, with my kids. And so if I'm not sure whether my words are gonna tear down, then I wait, then I wait. And it looks sometimes like I've gotten real quiet and I have, right? I have. Um, I've used self-pity as a weapon. That's another thing that we've done. If you expect others to give you permission to act in ways that are hurtful, unkind, and selfish, because you've gone through a hard time, that's self-pity, right? Self-pity and grief are not the same. Grief does not excuse, does not wear the circumstances as, as an excuse for behaving badly, but self-pity does. Self-pity says, this happened to me, therefore I should be able to do whatever I want. Therefore I should be able to say what I want because after all I'm hurt, after all I'm in pain. And I've used that, you know, grief is a normal response to a loss. Being sad is not a defect. Grief may cause us to temporarily retreat into ourselves, but it allows ourselves to eventually be comforted at some point, and it invites others back in. It draws us closer to others. We may always feel some level of grief if we've had a painful loss, but the day comes when we welcome the way that the world continues to spin on its axis. And if we don't, that's self-pity, right? That the day is supposed to come when we notice the rhythm of being alive and we step back into this rhythm of the world. 
and self-pity is a response to grief that supports prolonging the pain. It pushes people away and it creates more hurt, more anger, right? More distrust. I think it's grief that turns into grief stricken and that turns to self-pity and that's what we're cautioned against. I've lived in self-pity. I've lived in self-justification. When you say to yourself, I have every right to blank or I have every right not to blank, fill in the blank with the things you know you should be doing, right? You know that you're supposed to do. You feel it in your heart. You feel it in your conscience, but you push it aside because you want to use the grief as an excuse to not do it. That's self-pity. We're cautioned against that. And so for me, I would show up to family events with my mental lists of hurts and grief, real or imagined, real or imagined. And I would show up at my own dinner table that way. I would pout or smile at a fake smile, eat nothing in front of others, right? And then eat in the bathroom. Because that's what it was like when you walk in with that kind of that energy. Or I would go upstairs in my bedroom and binge privately. You know, um, I used my personal losses as a free pass to not being the person I knew I should be. And then I would criticize others for their parenting, their shallowness, their opinions, et cetera. Right? I kind of back up and cast judgment. Page 128, it says, giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. So what is a guiding principle, right? A guiding principle are principles or precepts that guide people throughout life in all circumstances, irrespective of the changes that's going on around us. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what type of, you know, if you've got a guiding principle, it doesn't change when new management steps into the job. If this is your guiding principle and it doesn't matter if things are going difficult in your world, if this is your guiding principle, it's guiding you no matter what. And those are our steps. Those are our guiding principles. And it's telling me that regardless of what's going on, what's my guiding principle? I remain giving. And if you think about guiding principles, those are the principles we lean on when we need guidance. That's what it's there for, when we need to be guided. The guidance, meaning that they're there when they're bumps, right? That's what a guiding principle is for. And what's the point of having principles if we don't apply them when we need the guidance, right? When things are tough and we throw them out the window, that defeats the whole purpose of having a guiding principle. And this is what it means to be other-centered, right? That we are other-centered no matter what's going on around us, not just in the fellowship, we're told in the family as well. Page 128, it says, assume that on the other hand that father has or mother has at the outset, a stirring spiritual experience. Overnight, as it were, he is a different man. He becomes a religious enthusiast. 
he is unable to focus on anything else. As soon as the sobriety begins to be taken as a matter of course, the family may look at their strange new dad with apprehension. Then with irritation, there's talk about spiritual matters, morning, noon, and night. And then it continues at the bottom of the page. It says, we have indulged in spiritual intoxication, like a gaunt prospector, belt drawn in over the last ounce of food, our pick struck gold. Isn't that what happened to us? That when we were at the very end, could not go on anymore, our pick struck gold, right? We hit this thing that's gold. Joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds. And father feels that he has struck something better than gold. And for a time, he may try to hug the new treasure to himself. He not, may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load, which will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. I love that line because it tells me that so long as I give everything that I get, all the gifts that this program has given me, if I just turn it out and give it as freely as I can without worrying, is there gonna be anything there for me? We get it limitless quantities, right? Limitless. And further down, it says a spiritual life, which does not include his family obligations, may not be so perfect after all. And then the promise that dad's spiritual infancy will quickly disappear. I mean, over and over again, we keep getting reminded about being a baby, about that it's time to grow up. And my sponsor would say that to me. I think it's time you grow up. Sounds like you're doing some growing up now. We grow up. So what I found was that I can talk, for me, way too much about spiritual matters. I can get so excited by this incredible program and the relationship I have now with my creator. And I've gone way too far with my family in this. You know, they are less impressed by my talking about spiritual matters and more interested in how I behave, right? I can talk to them all I want about the power of God. And I can talk to them all about when things are going rough for them and not their way. I can speak volumes to them about trust and reliance. God has a plan. That's one of my favorite things I tell them when things are rough. I trust and rely. There is a God. God's got a plan. We just don't understand it, but we can trust it. How do I behave? Do I behave that way? Or do I throw a tizzy when it's not going my way? I can speak all I want volumes, but how do I show up, right? They're less impressed by my words. I need to behave as though I'm spiritually fit. They should see God in me, not hear God from me, right? See God in my demeanor, not hear God in my words, right? And, you know, I have to say there was a time um, when my daughter would come to me with her problems and I would try to get her to see her part. That was like, I would be like, 
you know, almost like 10 stepping this kid. And if I could give like one big, like, don't do this, please learn from me, learn from me. Do not guide your children into 10 steps. First of all, they are not, whether they are or not, you know, they may or may not be addicts. And even if they are, you're not their sponsor. I'm not her sponsor, it's not my business. So, you know, um, that made for tremendous difficulty. If, if you know, um, people don't want, when people come to you with a problem and they're not in this program, you might not have to, you don't have to lie to them, right? You don't have to lie and be dishonest, but you can offer some compassion. You can just be compassionate. Page 130, it says, this dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We've come to believe he would like us to keep our head in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. We found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. So the great spiritual work that we do, yes, prayer and meditation, keep your head in the clouds. I love my quiet time with God. I love my meditative practices. I feel so full, right? Those are wonderful things. God wants us to do that. But he also wants us to take our feet and move them about in our family behaving as though we have received, right? The purpose of prayer and meditation is to receive. And then my purpose here on earth is to give it out, right? So if I'm just receiving it, Think about it like this, like we're the channel, right? It comes through us. If I don't let it out, that, that flow that comes to me, I become a swamp, right? If I don't flow through, what happens to a swamp? It's stinky, it's smelly, it's right. That's what happens. So we're supposed to let it flow through us. And we come to find our great purpose absolutely must include our families. I can pray and meditate all I want. I can light my incense. I can explore my God consciousness. But if there's night after night, no dinner on the table, or my husband had no clean underwear in his drawer, I could speak about God all I want. If I have no time for my mom, right? What good is that? Sane and happy usefulness. And I have to say, you know, for me, the day came and it has come repeatedly since where my spiritual connection and my faith was a gift for my family. You know, there was, um, I have two like wonderful stories I wanna share. One is um, there was a time when, when something happened with my daughter, we were away. My daughter was young, she was like 16 at the time and she did something and I was, I was beside myself, really worked up, really angry. And it looked like, it looked like things were going bad with this kid. By the way, 
God is miraculous. She is just fine today. But it would look bad. And I was losing my mind. And I, I cried to my husband. I said, this is terrible. This is awful. This is never. This, this we will never get over. This will never get better. And my husband, who was pretty much always kind of made fun of my prayer and meditation practice in his joking way. He's, he's not mean about it. That's just his way. When I said that, he said to me, wait, wait a second. He said, wait, 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 wait. He said, Melissa, you always say God has a purpose, that God's got, there's a plan here, that something good is going to come from this. We just don't know what it is. Come on. And I was shocked because he repeated he repeated my words. And I had said to him, you know, and I always tease him. I'm like, you don't even listen to me. But clearly that seeped in. And I said to him in that moment, my goodness, I'm like, do you, do you like when I say that? Do you want me to say that? And he said, yeah, I really need to hear it now. And, you know, so it turned out for me that, you know, um, Having, for this family, having a wife and a mom that has limitless supplies of faith, if I can mine it and give it out free, I got back tenfold, tenfold. And another story, which, um, you know, I sort of touched on the last time when someone Anne-Marie, you had asked a question last time, and it actually is part of this talk, so it was perfect segue, but... You know, when we pray for our kids, right? How do they behave? And there was a morning that my son said, you're not doing anything for me. You're not helping me. And I said, I can't help you any more than, I, I don't know what else to do for you, honey, but I can pray. And if you come, let me pray with you. Let me pray for you. And I pulled him close and I prayed for him. Um, and this kid came home, you know, by the way, I prayed that God would make himself known to him, that he would feel the presence of God with him, that I knew that he was going through a hard time. And I knew God was here inside him, just like God is inside me. And I prayed that he could feel the nearness of creator, just like I do. And I asked God, I was scared too. I said, God, please just show up for him today. Just let him feel you. Let me know that you're with him. And that day I got phone call after phone call, three phone calls from three teachers who had noticed that he needed some additional love, support and guidance. And they said, he's such a good kid. What can we do to help him? Like teachers reached out to me and I knew that that was God showing up. And my kid came home that day and he said, Ma, you want to hear something crazy? He goes, I was humming this tune. He goes, what is this? And he started humming it. Turns out it's a song that he learned in Hebrew school as a little boy that he had forgotten. The whole song is, is all about God. Is all, it's all, there is none like our God. There is none like our Lord. There is none like our King. There's none like our Savior. And that's, this kid, that was running through his head the whole day. So I know, I believe that the family afterward benefits from our spiritual practice if we demonstrate the faith, you know, and we offer it to us. Um, you know, page 132, it says, we are not a glum lot. 
I love this. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We may try, we may not, we try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. We think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seeming tragic experience out of, I just wanna pull this up because I lost my page here and it's so good, um, page 132. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and we have been given the power to help others. And then it go, further goes on to page 133. We are sure, sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it once was just that for many of us. So in our families afterwards, we absolutely must have fun with our families. We must, we're told here, we're supposed to play. We're supposed to enjoy ourselves. I know for myself, you know, I, I do things with my husband that are fun, things that I wouldn't have done necessarily before when food was my master, because food used to tell me what we like to do. Food used to say, no, this is what you enjoy. But now that I'm recovered, food is not my master. God is my master. And God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free to enjoy the families that we've been gifted. And with that, I will pass.